Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another great episode lined up today with a fantastic guest who has over 22 years experience in learning development. And he describes himself as somebody who's able to quickly analyze current processes to find clear metrics for improvement and create strategic harmony between people, systems, and tech. I loved that way that he described himself and uh, wanted to make sure that we use that as part of our introduction today. His passion is building unified learning ecosystems that meet a need where it matters most on any device. And so anybody that knows me and the business that we're in know that that comment would uh, really strike a chord with me. He is the founder of Virus Creative and is currently the senior program manager of learning technology at T-Mobile. That was a big introduction for our guest today, Phoenix Cavalier. Hello, Phoenix. Hey, Justin. I'm super glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So excited to have met you and learned a little bit about your background. I'm super excited for today's conversation. Me too. Uh, We've we've got a lot to cover, man. So I'm going to get started right away and ask what you think is the biggest challenge that you see facing the deskless workforce today. Okay. So yes, I've been thinking about this and for quite a while. Uh, the really, the short version is this. I believe for anyone, especially in frontline, a distributed workforce, the challenge that we have is reaching them in the same speed as their regular life. So in your personal life, you hop on your smart device, you might search up something like anything on YouTube or on the internet, and the speed that you expect results is now, like when I look for it. So in the workforce environment, especially frontline distributed, et cetera, why aren't we as fast? Why are we asking someone to look something up through multiple links, through pages? And often the the answer is, well, there's security and there's other things, but that's not a good enough answer when you want to help someone perform in their role. And so we're left with either hoping that they memorized it, we're left with uh, hoping that someone is not gonna say, uh, get the wrong one. The last update wasn't that one. Whatever. How are we helping people in frontline if, if it takes longer than it does in real life, so to speak, outside of work? So I think that's the challenge. Like it cannot be this slow. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. I, I think you're really the first guest to to outline it the way that you just did. And, and I think it makes perfect sense. And when you t- started talking about security, it, it kind of made me chuckle a little bit that that's one of a long list of excuses that we seem to come up with in large enterprise scenarios where there's always a huge list of reasons that we can't deliver on that experience yet in our consumer lives it just seems that those barriers are tackled yeah why why do you think that is i think there's part of it is you know when you say so in learning and development you have that you can say the skill gap or the will gap right you can train to the skill you can't really train will when i think about some of those issues it really is an issue of will 
Because you could say, well, it costs X dollars. I need X number of people. I need to identify vendor partner support, et cetera. Those are all tactical decisions you have to make in, in business all the time. So the only thing I'm left with is, why are we lacking the will to optimize frontline tools in the same way that everyone leaves the building from work and everything behaves a certain way that I would say is about socially normative behavior. We expect certain things to take X minutes, seconds or time. And then we go into the workspace and suddenly it's all not that way. But work is really an extension of our, our lives. So why is this performance so different? Why is this, you know, I, I would say it's also not that way in every single environment. So we know there are examples where this isn't being addressed in terms of at scale. Um, but if you said, is it the norm? No, people are still like knowing, well, I go to work and it's always these other things. I'm like, but wait, I thought the companies had all the money to do all the stuff with the things, but then they don't do it. Why, you know? So uh, I think there's a lot of, I think just think there's a missing amount of willpower to get it done. Cause I mean, there are brilliant people who want to solve these problems. Yeah. And you, you talked about the, the uh, budget or, you know, the, the financial issues, right? Do, do you think that there's a perception that they just wouldn't get a return on their investment or that there's just too much bureaucracy in the process to go justify the funding to create those experiences for employees that would mirror what we have in the consumer realm? Why do you think that we, we struggle to make those justifications? So I'll use the, the sort of a belief I have at this time, which is organizations, especially in performance and support for frontline, are competing with YouTube, Google, and your smartphone, full stop. The next concern is people think, well, I don't want to spend too much because, you know, the attrition is so high. It's a very chicken egg kind of thing. They're like, okay, so you're saying that you have turnover. Okay, fair enough. It's retail. Someone, so maybe some says it's a job, others say it's a career. I think it's really up to the person. But then on the environmental side, the working environment, how are you making it more interesting, better, or otherwise optimized so that I don't want to quit? So for me, I think that's the big barrier is people think, well, say retail, you have 80% attrition or whatever average. Then we know that's not a surprise, right? So to describe that as a barrier, I think is both misleading and disingenuous. The fact is retail has churn because as a function, it may be either younger workforce, newer enroll, variables in terms of revenue, salary, hours, and wages. There are a lot of reasons why it's a great branch to some other roles, management, leadership, et cetera. But there's also reason to say, it's okay if you have churn, if in fact everyone in that role is really well supported and optimized in their ability to help the customer. So then what's the follow on? The follow on is, if I create an environment where we'll say a binary example, store A, store B. Store A works as we know it is today. You gotta have links and VPNs and check-ins and security and all the layers. And it's really, you can make it work and it does, but it's not smooth and, and I'll use the word frictionless. Store B, say we'll call it a million bucks. Though maybe we'll go bold, say it was a, you know, $600 million they spent to revolutionize their frontline environment. And what did they see, in my view, as a likely outcome? Even if you said their attrition dropped 5%, that's revenue positive. Even if you then said the time to support a customer took 50% less time, 
because access to content, knowledge, and information was faster. And if you then set customers and either a net promoter score or any other metric you wanted to use, started to show higher levels of satisfaction. Why? Well, they perceived the experience as better than the other location. Even though these are incremental pieces, right? If a company doesn't think it's worth investing in that transformation of the experience, then they're going to continue to be narrating reasons for inaction. Attrition, cost, security, wage and hour, compliance. But what have you done? You've not created either a better experience for customers, a more frictionless experience for the employee in terms of support and systems, and you haven't changed the overall landscape in a manner that can benefit potentially your rate of churn. All because you saw dollars as a reasonable explanation. Like, but that if you go to any company, anyone in the business, large or medium, et cetera, will tell you we have been wasting money over here, over there, over here, over there. There's loss in revenue all over the place. And so what I find is the I guess the most sort of sad part of this is frontline is still underrepresented and or misrepresented and or underappreciated as the functional part of the business at large. Now, that's not to say every company behaves the same way, but for myself and others who have done that kind of retail work, frontline work, et cetera, outside of more recent conversations with terms like essential worker, People did not validate the level of importance and the total level of impact that every frontline team member has. They're the face of your brand. They're the experience the customer refers to. They deserve as much support as you can possibly afford, even if it means you don't get new office chairs for another two years. So that kind of balance is almost... If you said, well, is it about margin? Sometimes, because margins can be slim in a lot of frontline retail settings. But how do you make the most of your margins? You look for other ways to reduce expenses. And if I could think of one, attrition would be great. And the only way I can do that is to change how it feels to do work. If my frontline team feels, I go to work, it's easy to do. I get answers. They're not hard to find. I feel supported because I know how to get the information. I'm not feeling like an idiot when a customer asks me because how they've presented information for me as an employee is really consistent. So it's, these are not impossible things to solve, but they are kind of, you could say in some ways, they're like wonky, systemic, <laughs> operational. They're not really sexy, like we got brand new stuff. Like they won't look cool for a while right. because you've got a lot of backend work before you get to show the big, you know, exciting new stuff. But I think getting back to the expense versus investment mm-hmm. conversation is is what's missing. You didn't use those words, but I really that that's what I was taking away from what you're describing, and it, and it kills me. I, I talked with one of America's largest employers just today, mm-hmm. and they said that one of the most frequent things they hear in exit interviews is that the employees felt a lack of confidence and competence about their role. And so when you think about that and it's like, okay, well, we can can look at it as an expense and say, well, it's more expensive 
to try to get them to a point of comfort and competence in their role. Or we can look at it as an investment and say, what would it take? Well, could we really move the needle if we invested more in them? And could we actually have an impact on attrition as a result? And you know what's, what's crazy, and, and this is part of what you're alluding to here, is that th- this challenge of turnover in some of these frontline roles is not new. No. It's exacerbated, <laughs> right? Recently, it's definitely grown, right? And I think we've become more aware. You kind of stole some of my shtick before when you, you were talking about essential workers. I mean, we never used that term prior to March of 2020. I think it was, I was, you were probably in my head when I thought. <laughs> Maybe so. But, but, but it's a, that's a, that's a, that's a really important change in the way that we perceive the men and women on the front lines. The fact that, you know, I think you and I joked when we first met about, you know, nobody thought about who delivered the toilet paper until there wasn't any toilet paper there. And now all of a sudden we start to look around and today we continue to have supply chain issues and we're like, well, who the heck's responsibility is it to do all of those things? So we've, we've raised the importance or, or our appreciation for their roles, but have we really done anything to switch the thinking from, Jesus, it's expensive to maintain that workforce to, hey, why don't we make an investment in that workforce? And I feel like we're still lagging behind where we need to be. It's such a funny thing, right? So if you look at large capital expenses, you usually amortize them over time in terms of an expected useful life, total cost, and then the benefit to the business based on the expense itself. What's interesting is any large company does that for printers, desks, hardware, all these sort of obvious goods, right? Um, And yet, if you looked at the check page, right, for one single event, it's really large, right? Um, And what's also funny about that is you could look at, say, I'm just gonna stay in the furniture zone. Those things get replaced quite a bit, you know? Well, why? Well, there's damage and wear, okay, sure. But as a function, they all still work in most cases. But when you see a wholesale replacement of all, say, the furniture, even though only, say, 16 to 20% was actually broken down, but well, we didn't want to have mismatched furniture. Okay, so you spent, you know, $500 million, replaced all the chairs and the tables, and it looks great, um, but we still have a frontline challenge that hasn't been funded for five years. Well, we're working on it. Well, why? Why is it so long? What is this telling? This is why I keep going, it's a will gap because we think that it doesn't really matter because there could be the the banality of this is sort of persistent, right? Well, people need a job, we're gonna get people. And what's that mean? Well, people lean in to the churn as, well, we have a renewable workforce of people who just need jobs that we can just go get. I'm like, okay, well, that's an interesting way to view it. And it is a, consistent model in a lot of frontline environments because they think, well, the good news is, even though we've got such high churn, we keep getting new folks. It's like the weirdest way to, to, to almost undercapitalize an essential component of your business yeah. because you think that the churn itself is evidence of the renewability of it rather than the churn being a byproduct of the environment not being conducive to staying. But you'll replace all the furniture every two years. And something that you said, uh, which resonated with me also, those frontline workers are the face of your brand. So when you think about it, you know, what does a customer come away with more? Do they recognize the updated furniture or store fixtures or, you know, any of those other investments that we can make? 
or do they recognize the way that your frontline workers made them feel when they had a transaction with your company? And that's something that you can't get somebody up to speed on that in 30 or 60 or 90 days. That's what the most tenured employees are able to deliver the best. And so when we look at how we can invest in, in the new hires that are coming in to make sure that they stay long and become a tenured contributor to the team, um, it, it seems so obvious when we're talking about it here on the podcast. I know we're, you know, it's easy to oversimplify this. I know it's not as easy. So for those listening and maybe rolling their eyes to say, oh, it'd be easy if we just waved a magic wand. I get that. But I, I do think some of it comes from just how we think about making investments in those folks and taking away, um, you know, some of the inhibitors to, to their success and, and ultimately satisfaction in the role. All right. I realize now I've let us go way too far down and, and we haven't even it's told okay. the audience who the heck you are. I've got, <laughs> I got captivated by that first part of that conversation and I'm skipping over my own uh, agenda and outline for our show today. So let's, uh, let's give our audience a little bit of understanding of who you are and um, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in the role you're in today and, and a little bit about that journey. Yeah, uh, so uh, my name is Phoenix Cavalier and uh, I've been in learning and development for 20 plus years. The, I think when I think about this lately, uh, I realize I'm part of the accidental learning and development years. So I literally started a job in a call center that was a temp role. I started making training content because there wasn't any using PowerPoint. And I remember I went to New Horizons Learning Center to learn PowerPoint. And I basically started solving problems in that call center for myself and my peers because we were being measured on things that we didn't have documentation on. So I thought that's a weird problem. Um, six or so months later, I pivoted that and negotiated with the call center manager, Angela, um, I just said, I can't just keep doing this job that I'm not really paid for. So I want to become a trainer. And so she acknowledged that that was uh, you know, a tough spot, but it worked out. I was really nervous. I was in my 20s and I just was like, oh, I'm so nervous. But I knew that I, I liked what I was doing. It was helping my team. It's helping people on the sales floor of the call center. But um, that was the beginning of becoming then the call center trainer, 150C call center, design curriculum. Uh, multi-week onboarding and new hire training, systems training, the incubator, then the coaching on the floor, and then eventually they would get to mature into their role. Um, and in that role, things I still, um, you know, resonate with me even from way back then is as a trainer, you see how training can change someone's life. You can find moments where you meet someone whether 18 to 60 years of age, they're new in that role they're not new at life and so being able to honor their contributions and their past experience and really help them see that this quote-unquote job really is part of anything they want to make it and I felt my own example of a you know uh, temporary job at the regular wage of some kind and turning that into a career while somewhat accidental um, once I had found the love of training it, it was no longer an accident I, I really liked how it helped people so I did learning and development, either training and design, then instructional design, uh, working for companies like Citigroup and Nordstrom, T-Mobile. Um, over the years, I then decided to pursue an undergrad or basically undergrad in digital cinematography. And that is both a love of art and science, but also film as a method of telling stories. It related also to how people were looking at content on the, online differently. Um, 
if you looked at search algorithms and how they were changing video content would service more quickly. It was beneficial to various creative clients to have content that could be packaged that was more than just text. And it was also from, I think it was a, uh, who was this report by? But it was saying in 2010, it said by the year 2015, 80% of search would be video driven. And so I was like, well, that's really compelling. Um, and that was a Cisco Nortel uh, report. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. So I thought that was an important pivot to really understand that sort of online presence, content itself, and how all the various search algorithms have continued to change. Video was going to be a, a, an important part of my own development to help clients. It also pivoted into training I did for Nordstrom. It's pivoted into other situations at T-Mobile as well. And it's a really great medium. I wouldn't say it's a savior in every case, but it is an amazing medium for telling a good story and helping people gain skills or knowledge. Um, I got a master's in instructional design and learning technology later. And it was really an exciting process to take a lot of years of experience and then kind of wrap that around with the masters in the discipline itself, which I think has helped not only formalize some of the concepts regarding adult learning theory, et cetera, but also with so many years in the, in, in the, in the work, it meant I viewed the master's program in a particular, a different way, a lot more hands-on, a lot, a lot more questions that I had, and I could also apply it more readily in my work. Um, so I think where I am now is both, um, in love with the strategy that is learning design, uh, in love with the tools and how they keep evolving, but chief among them all is my love of people, the impact we can have when we actually say, how will this help someone? When we ask, is it just cool to me or is it actually valuable to others? You know, and when we can say, oh, I've got the best buzzword, it's called insert whatever thing that's trendy and let's go do it but fully audit that against actual real use cases. And especially in a frontline environment, sort of interruptions, customers, needs, variables. A lot of the time I, I am thinking through these different ideas of tools and technologies to then consistently come back and ask, when will this be really meaningful to a frontline team member? And not just cool sounding or otherwise overpromise under deliver, but when will it actually reduce friction, provide value, help them feel competent? That is what helps me, I think, balance my love of all the nerdy technical things with the, the real goal, though, is meeting for people. And I think that really is rooted in the training that I started in, <laughs> inadvertently way back when. And just yeah. seeing, I mean, people's lives are changed when someone is truly interested in that person's skill development. And I love that. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I want to go back to your degree on digital cinemat cinema cinematography. Yeah. It was a, a tongue twister. And <laughs> really think about video and, you know, you mentioned search. And so I, you know, of course I immediately think of Google and I think of how smart they were to buy YouTube when they did. Right. Um, I remember chuckling with YouTube because my son, I would find my son looking up, you know, how to do things on a video game through YouTube. Yeah. Oh yeah. And nobody taught him how to do that. You know, he was young at the time. He might not have even been a teenager yet. And I, I saw him using his iPad and his Xbox or whatever game system he was using at the time. 
you know, he would use his iPad to look something up on YouTube, learn how to do it in a video game. And then he'd be swiveling over to, to actually do it real time. And, you know, I don't even know if that would have been obvious to me and nobody taught him how to do that. It was just so incredibly intuitive and obvious to him that that's how he was going to get help with something. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just thought that was amazing. So it, it's interesting to see how that's begun infiltrate into, you know, enterprise environments. I'm curious to, to get to my question now, I'm curious to, to hear your take on the value of video as a medium and where you think that either instructor-led training or other e-learning um, tools can pick up where video might not have all that it needs to offer. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I love that question. So first is that I'll share my firm belief is that there's a critical difference between training and learning. So at large, L&D, as an industry, as a community, consistently applies the word training when it should not be applied. And I'll mean this to say training is observable, it's measurable, it's coachable, and it has a clear metric for success, whether that's a score in your exam or otherwise. But it is something that's very much a linear event that can be completed uh, and demonstrated. Now, learning is what you described in the ability to simply go get an answer. Where video, even in the home remodel I did, was many hours in YouTube to research, how do you do drywall? Should you use the tape or should you use the new adhesive kind? Should you use the masking or should you use the old, you know, everything I could think about, I would go and see if there's an answer. Note that I did not become a drywall expert. I did not become an electrician. I did not become a plumber. I didn't become those that are actually skilled in the discipline because they have behavioral expertise. What I did was acquire the appropriate amount of knowledge to execute against the goal to achieve an outcome. As a learning event, that is that moment of need. The moment of need means that when you look at video as an investment, it's usually between five and $7,000 for three minutes of video. That cost then, if you were to measure it as did Justin watch the whole video equaling a metric of success? I would say that's a poor use of video. The better question is, did Justin get value from the video when and where he needed it, regardless of whether he watched the whole thing? If Justin said, yeah, I did. I loved it. I, I didn't watch the whole thing. I didn't need the whole thing. I just went to you know, about a minute and a half in, 12 seconds into that, about 20 seconds all together, got the thing I needed. Then that would be a successful video meaning the video clearly had enough actionable intelligence to solve a problem in the moment of need without requiring that Justin complete the whole thing and use three whole minutes. Why would I make you watch the whole video? Now, if you drive this as a revenue question, you can say, but I want to watch the whole video. It cost me $5,000. It's a really fancy video. You got to see the whole thing. The ending is amazing. Maybe it is. So I came to be both a fan of video, skilled in making video, love video, and also wanted to say, maybe you don't need a video. <laughs> so it was a funny, uh, the more you know, the more you don't need it kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, that's really an interesting transition for you. It was, because I'm like, I love video. Also, don't do it. Like, the, the follow-on. <laughs> I love video, I, so whatever you do, please don't <laughs> invest there. <laughs> so when I'm at Nordstrom, right, I created a Good, Better, Best series for a hiring training course. And that meant I had about 
15 videos to show three variables upon which a learner could choose which example did you think was good, better, and best. This was for hiring and skill for manager skills. What I found interesting was the amount of video I needed to truly create a measurable demonstrated example of knowledge acquisition by the learner was a lot of video. I think that was a good 40 to 60 hours of, you know, running and gun and filming pre and post and editing and sound and voiceover and getting the graphics and the, it was a lot to do. Now, what I liked was as a branching scenario, good, better, best choices did lead to an outcome. And the functional result was for the manager to learn that there were actually two best candidates they could hire for different reasons. It was also that the, often you see this case where there's only one final outcome. In real life, there's often many more nuanced goal. And for hiring, it was interesting because the, the outcome meant this person is a good candidate and they can solve the full-time gap. This person also is a good candidate. They can solve the part-time gap. So instead of often we're looking at in leadership and hiring, right? I need one person to solve all the problems I have. Like, well, that's really a lot of pressure on that person. Maybe you should look at all the candidates and see how they might fit in the landscape altogether. So I'm proud of that work. I love the results. I think it was a lot of fun, but it was educational in that if you want video to be meaningful, you need to build in decision points that allow the learner to evidence their comprehension and you need to build in feedback. Then you need to build in a metric that shows how the feedback can either be revised based on new data that the learner has gained or that the video itself is sort of ended and you could do another metric like a quiz or another piece. So when I think, where do we go next? Video is wonderful and everyone would like it to be like YouTube. What I think people forget about the YouTube experience is the curation is a crowdsourced volume. So if you think about, say you have a favorite YouTuber, they do a lot of work to produce, light, edit, refine, like the level of effort of even the most casual looking film is pretty impressive, especially when you add to the fact that many of these producers make multiple videos in a week, right? So what they have on the back end are good systems, good methods, good procedures, good partners, in order to churn out volume that even if it seems like it's only one to six minutes, there's still a lot of work there. When a corporate environment is seeking to use video at scale, they would need to address the time cost benefit of really producing volume, then being able to manage revisions and being able to manage any relaunches, changes and corrections if that video is going to be helpful. So this is why I have become a real fan of augmented reality as a use case that takes us from the way that you can search a video and get value to the way augmented reality can let you surface content that means something to you. And it might be at the very moment of me when the customer said, hey, I have a question about a thing. And you might be brand new in your role. You might have just graduated new hire training. You might be someone who's in the middle of any number of things in the day, and no one has ever asked you about that before. So how can I help you organizationally in the front line feel really competent, even when you're about to guess? Now, the current reality is I'm just going to take out my own personal device. I'm going to look up the thing with my customer. I'm going to get the answer, and we're going to have a nice time. From an organizational viewpoint, though, 
I don't know what result you're getting. I don't know what search result you're after. I don't, I don't know what you're really sharing. And more than that, I don't know if it actually is in line with the brand and our overall goal to say, talk about a device or a product or a service a certain way. But as long as you have to look through links or articles or PDFs or different sites or find a, a, some random list of things that you should remember, Google's gonna be faster. And that's gonna that's gonna win because your customer is looking at you, expecting you to be an expert, and they think right. that you should have an answer. And you're like, I've never used that device personally, so I'm gonna look it up. And I don't yeah. fault anyone for that. What else? What would I do? I would do the same thing. So um, I think AR has a real value proposition in the big picture. I think it has a lot of speed in terms of value to the the person in the front line. That pressure point and it drives up the experience for the customer to feel like, wow, those people were really smart. Internally though, the team does not need to memorize everything. Right. That is an old leftover and that gets back to training and learning being different. Training, yeah, you have core competencies, clear memorization does occur, method and procedure is specific, behavioral, observable, coachable. But learning, it could change tomorrow. Oh, it was two hours ago. Not anymore. Now it's this. So the content that is going to be truly alive and fluid needs to be so supported, I think, with those tools and technology that is equally alive and fluid. AR is a big win there. I want to come back to the AR thing. <clears throat> um, I, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about that. But there, there's something that you mentioned before that I want to, in fact, two points that I want to connect back. Yeah. When we were talking earlier about the investments made in, in people, um, which of course comes around training and, and justification for investments and training. You then talked about video and the cost of five to $7,000 for three minutes of video and, and is the determiner of success, you know, just did somebody watch the video and, and you started to answer this. Um, I think that the question that was kind of brewing in my mind, which is how do you, if, if watching the video isn't the right success criteria for that investment, then what is? And you started to talk about feedback and, and other metrics. Can you drill down on that a little bit more to if, if just me watching the video isn't it? Because I could watch the video and still not solve my problem at work, right? But then how do we measure that maybe more effectively than what we would otherwise think of on our own? Talk us through that. Okay, cool. I love this question because it does get at why is video so hard to make easy, right? Meaning, and there's two things. One, video is ubiquitous. Smartphones make them. TikTok exists. Everyone makes videos. Nobody yep. needs to even be a videographer anymore. Everyone's just yep. making videos, right? Yep. Uh, and that was back in 2010, that Cisco Nortel report, the, the volume of video is going to be enormous. And this is like yep. a volume thing, right? So the, the, the ubiquitous things is we all think we well, just make it, just make a video. Okay, well, that's true. We've decreased the perceived value of the thing because of the volume. The problem with video and the production part of saying, if Justin watches the video and if watching it completely doesn't equal success, why? It means the following. If I were to tell you, use this three minute video to make decisions after you have finished watching it about insert variables, customers, tools, methods, procedures then you now need to be sure I'm going to interpret that video the way that you think I should. 
watching the video, I could show you a scene, customer, employee, process, sale completed, methods, tools. That video without adding text on screen and or closed captioning and or ideally meta tagging to support any search value and doing a good transcript. All of those come into focus to then say, okay, when Justin is watching the video at minute 110, does he know that the customer's expression is indicating a certain level of satisfaction and our intent is to describe a good experience for the customer by him pausing to recognize their expression? Well, sure, sure, yeah, because you see in this video, the salesperson does the following, but do I have a way to validate that Justin knows the salesperson did that because the expression on the customer's face indicated a certain level of satisfaction. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious it's not. The value in that moment is, did the video production team plan appropriately to call out both for reasons of audio and hearing impairment and or on-screen text or other narrative descriptors, what was occurring in the video? Now, why this is interesting to me is I did a long time ago volunteer for NPR where you read newspapers for folks who are blind. In that you have to, I was reading basically the comics. So I'm describing a comic scene in a way that is to say, okay, well, how do I talk about this for someone who's non-sighted? How do I explain this humor in a way that is not just by looking at a cartoon? So it was an interesting meditation on just how much is not obvious, even though we think it is because, quote, it's on screen. So for a person in a frontline environment, you get to the environmental factors. Are they watching this video in a quiet space? Are they able to use the audio? Are they using a device that's large screen, small screen, desktop, laptop? Is this a permitted time aside from the sales floor? Are they watching this using it in the sales environment? Is this only new hire training with follow-on coaching from a trainer? Is this virtual instructor-led where it gets to be adapted with a conversation, chat, or follow-up? When do we confirm understanding about how the viewer perceived the video? So that's what makes it difficult to sort of say, throw a bunch of videos at people, and this is where we get in the risk zone. Assume they all interpret the video the same way. When I did the work at Nordstrom on the Good, Better, Best series, what was notable is I designed pop-ups that explained what had happened and allowed the learner to then decide of these scenarios, having seen three, having then had three explained to a degree, the uh, evidence I wanted is, which would you consider good, better, and best? The confirmation there is that they'd also got immediate feedback. Oh, if I chose this was best and I was incorrect, I'm given a feedback loop of that was actually just good and here's why, about three bullets maximum. So to build one video to do the job of being a trainer in a room, a coach on the floor, and a person who knows more as a peer or mentor, you really got to make a very three-dimensional video. It's not impossible at all, but as a time cost, it can seem, and this gets to the request from the internal corporate side, like it's taken forever. Like, yeah, it will take more time. Yeah. So when I say good for video, I love it. Find durable use cases that will demonstrate best practices that will not change for at least six months. And that can be met both managed on the floor and coached on the floor, but also 
for the leaders in that room, they could pull up the video, watch it with their coworkers and employees, and also coach through the video. So a video that's well-built can do a lot. It just isn't the same as what we've come to believe about video on YouTube, which is you just make it with your phone. Now, why are those videos valuable? Khan Academy, example of a great use case of video and training and teaching. One is volume, two is audience, three is duration. But in that case, you've, you've spent a lot of pre-work time to build up that library. Yeah. So in the case of Khan Academy, that's, you know, super well-produced stuff. I'm sure it's heavily curated. Uh, Khan Academy got me through my son in high school, you know, trying to help him with math. So uh, they, they were fantastic. And that was really quality content. I think one of the things that's different and, you know, just downright frustrating at times about YouTube is that certain things, you know, certain search terms can come back with too many freaking results. And then, you know, as you talked about it before, since it's all crowdsourced content, the the variation between the quality of the content, the quality of the information in the content itself, yes. the production quality, the length, like all that stuff is just all over the freaking place. And oh, that's, yeah. it, sometimes you you pay a price if you're you know looking for something that's a very popular topic because you might have to sort through 10 videos to find the one that you, you choose to believe, right? Yeah, um, definitely. But, so what you just described with video is, is I, I get the sense it's like a lot of soft skills around retail workers. And, you know, I spend my day job working on systems training stuff. And I'm curious to get your take. <clears throat> Would those same things apply if we were talking about videos for the purposes of systems trainings, system training? Does anything change with the way that you perceive that um, in terms of its uh, effectiveness and potentially? Well, I have another follow up question, but let me just leave it there. In terms of video and you see for systems training? Yes. I think it has a strong value proposition for the following reason. Again, we'll pretend the system is stable and has no big changes coming. In the event that you're using the video to describe the behavior that is expected, it's nice because it's a durable use case. It could be true that in a, a say you're in a store or other frontline environment where there are not 10 of us, there are three of us and only two of us are on until 2 p.m. And then the closing person has the key. So at what point will I have a coach, peer or mentor? I may not. And in some cases, you could have it be, we don't have a manager, we have a key holder, the manager covers three different things in the territory. So there's a lot of ways that, when will you get trained on the system? Well, when you do get trained. And well, when is that? When the event occurs. When is that? When the customer arrives to show you the things. When will that happen? We don't know. So how can I help you gain knowledge and skill about a system that you may, in some use cases, not ever need to use for six or nine months because a customer use case hasn't occurred. We're leaving out high volume stores, high traffic environments, sure. and the reality of so many peripheral locations where the customer comes in and says, they didn't know anything about anything. Maybe it's because we didn't have durable systems in place to define the use cases that could occur. And we were relying on the shoulder to shoulder leftovers of you know the eighties to think that you can just learn a cash register with your friend. Right. It's not the eighties. You know, now a customer expects you to have those answers. I think video is a strong use case for a systems example. If you know your system's going to age pretty well, and then you can talk about it. Even when you think of a manager saying, hey, watch these videos to look through the transactions, you'll still need those call outs. There's still the need to describe what am I looking at, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
I think that's a big assumption though, too, that, that the system is going to stay static for a long time. That's one of the things we hear about every single day. It's, it's actually one of the biggest frustrations is the, um, you know, in this agile modern world of technology, we're changing things so regularly that that assumption is not always a good one to make. Um, so that, that could probably be a whole other conversation, <laughs> but I, I want to circle back. I want to circle back around to something else that you said, because I think I, I believe very, very strongly that ultimately the goal of all of these learning experiences for the men and women anywhere in the organization, but in particular in the front lines is to help them in the performance of their actual role. And one of the things that is just driving me crazy, <laughs> partly as the host of this podcast and partly in my day job is the lack of measurement, focus on measurement of the actual performance. Mm -hmm. So all of the investment from an L&D standpoint, at the end of the day, I believe should be largely determined by their success in role, not success through the L&D process, but their success in role. Whether it's systems training, which is what we're focused on here in my business, or just in their general soft skills and everything else. And I'm not hearing enough from companies in general about how we correlate or measure their success and then bring that back as part of the feedback loop to then say, well, what can we be doing better from an L&D talent development standpoint to improve those outcomes? Am, am I off base? Do you see that differently? Do you see there being better connections being made with that measurement or do you think it is a gap? What are your thoughts on that? I think there's, let me uh, gather my thoughts, a lot of thoughts. Um, so why I'm so interested in, in sort of separating training and learning is for that very reason, right? When we look at what we're measuring, I'm going to use, I think the call center is a good example for some ways that makes call center work very difficult. But in a call center setting, you look at average call handling time, average wait times, total cycle time, and you really are auditing the experience that the consumer, customer, and partner is having in very literal ways. Yeah. Now, what does that mean? Well, insert a company X, they bought the IVR, it helps the whole process based on a decision tree or otherwise frustrates customers. <laughs> um, T-Mobile's uh, happily not a big IVR user. Um, but why is, that, why is that happening? Well, because they were trying to manage the experience points for the customer journey to reduce number of hours in personnel time, but also perhaps better determine what the customer really needed. Right. We'll pretend there's both good and bad sort of things on the IVR stuff. But in the frontline sales piece, what's funny is we are not as often measuring things like how long did it take to complete the sale, right? Now, if you think about, we've been to environments, maybe in retail, you worked in retail where you might've had a quota for add-ons or the cross-shop cross-sell or the ability to level up in some way if the customer likes shoes, so they like socks, um, you know? So that sort of how many units were occurring, that's one of, one of the more obvious targets. Right. But if you said something as simple as, how long does it take to complete this transaction? You would logically end up discovering the slowdowns that were related to method, procedure, and systems that were likely related to decision trees and workflows 
and that we're probably in the big expensive column of we have to really redesign this whole thing. Insert anyone who raises their hand and says, yes, I want to do that. Most yep. people don't. So what do we end up with? A high volume of things called training that reach a very busy frontline audience with high churn. And we expect them to succeed based on the thing that we call training. The problem though, is that what we're really left with is sales volume. So then when you say, what are managers doing? They're gonna look at the sales and look at the sales to equal evidence of comprehension and skill. But you can be great at sales and not good at method procedure, customer experience, interaction, communication, nonverbals, listening, et cetera. They can still move product. So if you think about what are we measuring, how should we measure something like not just sales, then I think you have to look at something like total cycle time for a transaction, and then maybe other details that we do use, in this case, net promoter score and those surveys. And I like those tools to a degree, especially if they cover sort of the, how did you feel about this? That's nice to understand. But at the same time, it gets to the issue of if it's training, it needs to be coachable and observable. Otherwise, we need to increase the ability for people in the flow of work to learn, acquire, and act on new information, which might have just come out 20 minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's an amazing perspective. All right. Listen, I knew this was going to happen on this call because uh, we're already running out of time here. I, I am okay. never I'm <laughs> never going to get this podcast to 30 or 35 minutes because I just I have too many questions for our guests. I love um, so what we may, do? Maybe it's a, a failed uh, experiment. <laughs> uh, I have there's there's like 50 more topics that I want to talk about. But the, the one I'm going to mention uh, is gamification. This is something that yeah. came up when you and I had our, our quick prep call conversation. Yeah. And I just like to get your take on gamification. You and I joked about buzzword bingo and mm -hmm. gamification comes up a lot. I think people are talking about gamification and I don't know if they've seen it at a conference or read it somewhere in, in a journal and all of a sudden people are saying, oh, we need to have some of this gamification stuff. Give me your take on what gamification is and does it have a place in, in enterprise L&D strategy? So uh, I love this question because it's one of the things that I learned a lot more about in my master's program and it's really around game mechanics. And what I found was the epiphany that like, oh, I'm bad at game design. And the answer was, well, why? I didn't know games had mechanics. <laughs> so <laughs> um, that was a wonderful bit of learning that informs a lot of other things, but also gave me a lot of empathy for myself at the time and others in the instructional design space who were saying, hey, someone said they wanted a game in there. Quick, put in Jeopardy. Okay, well, that's, like PowerPoint, okay, maybe, I guess so. Sure, yeah, make a thing flip around. That's not a game, right? Game mechanics require a level of effort, a level of risk, a level of reward, and there might even be levels that increase. But it actually requires a lot of planning and design and a lot of good stuff above that, which is game theory. But when I realized people want games, then you have to say, well, why? Why do you think you want games? Well, we hear games are very exciting and people like them. Yes, but did you know that there were really skilled people who were called game designers who used game mechanics to engineer a really great result called a game? 
So all I would say to people is, have you ever played a game that sucked? Sure. One example is an all or nothing design, which causes you to lose all your points because you made one wrong play. Totally yep. demoralizing, not fun. This shows up in sort of things like, you're back to the start. You're like, but what, what, what? I, I was almost done. Nope. Yeah, well, yeah, we hit the red button. I didn't even know that was happening. So yep. risk reward, level of effort, challenge levels. When I think about gamification as a function, there's the other part when people say badges and icons and trophies. Those reward systems are visually appealing, right? So I think part of this is people are saying we want things to look more fun. Okay, congrats. Looking more fun is not the same as a good game design. I think about this too, because if you've got kids or at all and you've had the cleanup game, you know, when you make that song, it's the cleanup game. That's not a game. Right. It's a it's trick. Actually, it's manipulative. <laughs> yeah. You're just trying to have a song make the tour less painful for the kiddo. For and sure. it's fun. Like, hey, parenting's tough. But also kids eventually realize this is not any fun. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to play that game anymore, mom and dad. Yeah. yeah. So what's funny is if you were to say, try and make a real cleanup game for your kids, it could be something like, listen, we're going to clean up your room. You get X number of points for every shirt that you get in the laundry basket. And then next level, I'm going to move the laundry basket running around the room and you still have to throw it in. Oh, third level, the laundry basket is going to slide through the hallway. You have to be able to throw the laundry in while it's moving. Like, now you're causing game mechanics to occur. And now this might actually be fun. You might accidentally not clean up the room, have a great time, and then go get to it. So yep. games require that flow state to happen when you look at what good games do. So when I hear people say gamification and they're pursuing it, I wish that more of us in L&D would really step back and say, hey, do we have any game design experts in the house? True, false. Maybe we have to hire them, find them borrow them, promote someone, whoever it is, then say, do we have a time budget that would support good gameplay, right? Because if we do, super cool, not often the case, then we have a good base for the investment that would be required to make a good game that could do amazing things in Frontline. It would be awesome to have a game that was like, I, one of my master's thesis I was like, I would create a game called Service Rockstar, board game there were lots of risks you could get stuck in the waiting zone it's very dangerous um it had risk it had reward it had a throw in the dice situation it had cards the cards gave you a scenario of the customer and you had to decide what to do and if you didn't do it well you could end up you know in, in the not good stuff just trying to make that was so wild because i was like wow it is hard to do this but do i like games of course Good games can change the whole thing for people. I mean, you could go from, I hate doing this kind of work to now it makes sense and it's a lot more fun to think about it. But when you have a company who is sort of describing it as gamification, all my alarms go off as far as buzzword bingo. And unless that word gamification is attached to either a vendor, partner, team member, or otherwise an expert in game design and game mechanics, then we might inadvertently launch something that looks fun and is terrible. And it yeah. won't be because we meant to, but it's simply because we didn't acknowledge that game design is a real skill that requires real expertise and requires the time to play it. So if you think about frontline, perhaps whatever devices that they're able to use in that selling and, and support role, the last thing in that chain is, does my workforce want to play a game? <laughs> 
Yeah. I think it's a, it's a fair question. I love your reference to the time budget. That's something that I think we're particularly sensitive about with frontline worker populations. We often don't give them sufficient time to absorb changes that we're trying to push into the organization because they've still got to work the retail floor. They've still got to make a certain number of field service calls. They still have to make a certain number of deliveries. And um, so I, I love that idea of a time budget. I know we're, when we talk about budget, we're typically thinking of dollars. Um, but I love the time budget specifically with frontline workers. I feel like in other knowledge worker roles, um, the, the time seems a little bit more flexible, a, a little bit more elastic. We have a little bit more give um, to, to pull people out and give them the time that they need. I just yeah. don't feel like that way um, with the frontline folks. Um, last question about the gamification. You mentioned badges and trophies. I'm throwing into the mix also things like leaderboards. Would you qualify just those things, maybe with a little bit less of the traditional game mechanics in terms of my interactivity with the content, but just having some of those kind of visually appealing rewards and leaderboards and things like that, do you even put that in the, the category of gamification? And would you say that is that even a minimal form of gamification in your mind, or is that something different? I would very specifically describe it as visual rewards. Okay. Um, I wouldn't call it a game at all, but I have seen in numerous cases, and I do think it's a lot of fun, a competitive nature, a collaborative com competition. Leaderboards are interesting because some level of, of frontline, a, a good portion, love to be known as a winner. And who doesn't want to be a winner? So it's nice to see that ranking based on a scoring model. Now, the other part is if you look at badges and rewards being linked to any kind of actual physical good, then you have a couple of things that need to occur. You've got accounting required to deal with the budget side. If you're going to actually say, give me a hat right. or give me a scarf or whatever, that usually becomes a fractional metric because you don't want to go over a threshold for a tax implication to the individual learner. Yep. Which means you've got a decision tree on the back end which says of training deployed, which amount would actually allow for some kind of reward and or would those rewards equal a physical good or service or a win, i.e., you know, Starbucks card. Yep. If it's true that that would occur, you need a good metric for when and why. And you need also budget management to make sure you're not hitting someone's actual paycheck with a tax bill. So why is that? important because it it's it'll catch on really fast but you'll find suddenly like whoa these fractional points have equaled a lot of dollars and now we have a whole budget that we didn't expect was going to happen and so that's sort of a cautionary piece now if you leave out the money and you just make it about the leaderboard and the the badges there's some value but i think it becomes um peripheral right so you have save 100 people we'll pretend that you've got 80 who don't really care and 20 who are going to be in every game. So that kind of function is, okay, well, I'm going to have folks who are going to play any game and that's okay. Um, or want to get every badge, every coin, every token, every leaderboard, every win. But if you don't tie those visual cool things to something literal, it could become really hollow. Hmm. And that could actually backfire from the point of view that you've now infantilized your core workforce you've suggested that they just need stickers and you hope that they like them yeah that's a it's really interesting off. point that the bummer part of the story that you just told which uh i hadn't even thought about it, it's just the tax implications payroll implications and stuff like that and so 
when you track that back, everything that you just said, which is that, okay, nifty badges and, and things like that are cool if they materialize in something tangible that we can have in the physical world. Um, but there are these thresholds and complications about those tangible things. Th this is why big companies end up squashing a lot of these ideas because the complexity, right? because of regulation and just all the decision tree stuff that you talked about, it's like, oh, forget it. Let's just make them take this training. <laughs> you know? well, yeah. Let's just threaten to fire them if they don't take the training because this is just too complicated to try to make it fun. Yeah, and it's funny because it's, it's sort of like, well, when did games get so complicated? That goes back to my own opinion, like, oh, yeah. games are complicated. Like, yeah. like a good game, they actually had to make it. They had to make a it work. Thought, a yeah. lot of thought went into that. Uh, and so I almost would say, if a company thought, let's use gamification, then I would say, okay, then put it at the core of your learning system and your overall design, integrate it within a number of layers that could be fractional and total cost, right? And really spend a year or so building out a strategy related to game use in the frontline service and support role. Because if you don't have clear wins that I may be linked to career progression and or career pathing, then you've just given me chores that came with a song. And that's really not gonna make me love you. You know, yeah. <laughs> because you know what I'm gonna go do? I'm gonna go take care of that customer, close some sales, make some commission, and you can F off. Like I don't yeah. need your game. Yep. Right. So the ability to do it really well gets back to, like I said, I love tools and tech. I love people more. People are the first and end all be all, right? So how do people feel in their role? Do they feel valued? Do they feel supported? Do they feel like the work they're putting in equals rewards that they can actually bring home? Um, so it isn't to me that all of the new cool stuff isn't worth doing. It's often that we actually have to go slower than we might like to do it really well. So that when it does land, it really lands, you know, like, whoa, man, that's so cool. Do you see what they made? They made this amazing game story and you do like adventures and you have like six months to finish it because it should take some time, yeah. you know, and give me the room to actually do it in an enjoyable way along with that time budget support for frontline. So the managers and team members, they know they're not like trying to hurry up and finish the game really fast. Like, well, that's not, that's not fun. Now you just gave me stress that isn't a customer. Leave me alone. So, and that's <laughs> definitely not where we want to end up. Yeah. No, no. Okay. There are topics we're not going to get to today. One of them was yes. the AR piece. You and I'll have to talk about that offline yeah. and maybe we can set up another episode. There's one more thing I want you to tell our audience about. I know we're a few months out from when we're recording this, um, yeah. but later this year, you have a, a speaking event coming up with uh, at the Learning Guild Conference. Tell us about that. And, uh, and then I'd like people to be able to connect with you on LinkedIn afterward. Yeah. Super excited. Uh, the Learning Guild this November 6th through 9th, I believe in Orlando, Florida, I'll be speaking on augmented reality and the flow of work and just talking about how we can use AR to surface content that really supports the individual learner and the customer. Um, super excited about that. It's coming up. I think their roster and all the other stuff is online for their headliners and then other work is, is happening now in terms of other speakers. Um, I'm really jazzed that I got accepted to speak with them. That's good. I'm not surprised at all. You've got a lot of uh, great things to add and, and great insights to provide. So thank you great. very much for joining us on the show today. Uh, we are not going to be able to put a link in the podcast because you said that the link for the Learning Guild uh, event isn't fully done yet. 
Um, well, their main site, you can put that, but okay. is, yeah. We'll, we'll put a link to reference this event because I'm sure they've at least got the event uh, published there. And then yeah. anybody in the meantime can go yeah. connect with you on LinkedIn and I'm sure you'll be publishing it uh, at that time. So um, I do need to wrap it up. I think I'm like, Zoom is going to like kick me off. I'm probably using up all my cloud storage here. Um, okay. So I do have to wrap it up. Um, to the audience, I hope you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. I'm quite certain that you have. Um, if you have, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And we're always looking for other guests to be on Frontline Innovator. So if you know somebody that's out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Reach out to me on LinkedIn and share their story. Phoenix, thank you so much for your time today. It was great to meet you and I uh, really enjoyed the session. Likewise, Justin, thanks for having me. It was a blast. Have a we'll great week. You too. Thank you.